The scripture morning, the scripture reading this morning will be taken from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. The elders who are among you, and I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor for as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when Christ the shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to the elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. My apologies for the lack of handouts today. We have suffered some technological difficulties in the office, and hopefully by next week we'll be able to bring those back. But before we get started, I do want to make a couple of announcements. First off, you may recall that earlier this year we instituted a new database software that we're using for a, a keeping up with contact information for our members, for tracking attendance, for uh, conducting our, our willing-to-serve format. Uh, and so you can go online to our database, and you can complete your member profile, and then you can go to a section where you identify the areas in which you're willing to serve this congregation. Some of you have not done that yet, and so I want to take this opportunity to encourage you to do so. And if you are unsure of how to do that, you can go to our website, click on the Members tab, and there is a special section under the Members tab that gives you instructions and links to how you can go do that. Now, if you, to go onto the Members tab of our website, you do have to have your login and password readily available. So hopefully you either remember that or you saved it on your computer, one or the other. If not, you can contact the office and we'll help you uh, figure out how to obtain that again. Or I think you can request a, a new password type thing. But we want you to go in there and fill that out because if you haven't been asked to serve in, in, in a uh, volunteer position within worship or if you haven't been asked to serve in, in one of our ministries in a volunteer capacity, it may be because you haven't filled out your willing to serve form on the website and we would encourage you to go do that. Also, I want to make you aware that in December, we're going to do what we're calling a month of prayer. And that simply amounts to this. We're going to have a specific prayer request for you to focus on every day of the month of December. This is part of our effort to try to emphasize prayer in the lives of the members here at the Beaufort Church of Christ. And some of the prayers that we're going to ask you to pray have to do with praising God. Some of them have to do with thanking God. Others have to do with confessing to God, and, and others have to do with making requests of God. But every day in the month of December, we're going to have a different prayer request to encourage you to focus on that day in addition to your own personal prayers, but just a way to actively engage us in a continued active prayer life among ourselves. So be looking out for that when December rolls around. Now, if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you've already turned over to 1 Peter chapter 5, which is where our scripture reading was from, and it's where we'll be studying today as we continue this study of 1 Peter and this theme that runs throughout the book on being strange. Now, when you get to 1 Peter chapter 5 and the first five verses that we read a moment ago, it may seem strange that this, this passage appears here in the text. Because if you journey back to chapter 2 and chapter 3 of 1 Peter, you'll see the same format he uses in chapter 5 back there. 
You see, Peter took time in his letter to address individuals in the context of particular institutions. And so back in 1 Peter chapter 2, he wrote to Christians and spoke about their engagement with the institution of government. And then he wrote to servants, Christian servants, who were under the oversight of a master and wrote to them about their involvement and engagement there. And then you can get to chapter 3, and Peter writes to husbands and wives and, and gives instructions to them related to their interactions in the institution of marriage. And so throughout 1 Peter, he's writing to individuals to give them instructions on how to conduct themselves as Christians within these institutions. And in chapter 5, he kind of comes back to that formula after spending the last half of chapter 3 and the whole of chapter 4 focused elsewhere. And in chapter 5, he decides to address the church. He decides to address the relationships and the dynamic within the Lord's body. And so today, as we study 1 Peter chapter 5 and the first five verses, we're going to look at the strange dynamic within the church that Peter calls us to. But before we study the specifics of this passage, let's first consider why Peter felt it important to address the inner workings of the church and his instructions about being strange. There's a story told about a man who, after surviving ten lonely years on a deserted island, was finally rescued. And one of his rescuers noticed that there were three huts on the island. And so the rescuer said, said what's that first hut for? And the survivor said, well, well, that was my house. And then the rescuer said, well, what was that second hut for? For? And the, rescue, uh, the survivor said, well, that was, that's where I went to church. And so the rescuer said, well, then what was the third hut for? And the survivor said, oh, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> now, you, that's funny, but think about it. Isn't that the American mentality of church? We'll just go where it is convenient for me as a consumer of Christianity to go to church. We have this mentality in America that church is about me. It's about my wants and my desires and my interests and what's best for me instead of what's best for the glory of God. I bring that up because we live in a world that is watching Christians. In fact, throughout 1 Peter, Peter keeps emphasizing the fact that the world is aware, that the world is observant, and that what the world sees might just influence them for Christ. And so, as he gives instructions about the home, and as he gives instructions about our life under employment, as he gives instructions about how we handle ourselves as citizens, he's ultimately saying the world is watching, and the world will think it's strange if you behave the way Christ behaved. You see, Jesus understands, I'm sorry, Peter understands that the inner workings of the church do matter, because if the church is dysfunctional, if the church is divisive, if the church is disordered, then the world will be able to point at that and say, you're not strange. You're not different. You're just like us. So Peter calls for a strange dynamic in the church. What does that strange dynamic entail? What does Peter have to say about that strange dynamic? 
Well, first you're going to notice that Peter instructed elders to shepherd. Uh Uh-oh. That is the wrong PowerPoint. How did I manage that? Oh, well. Cut the PowerPoint because that's not going to make any sense. (laughs) Yeah, that's not going to make any sense to you today. Man, all those hours I spent building this PowerPoint, it's gone to waste now. So follow along with me. We have no handout. We have no PowerPoint. But that's okay. We have the Word, and that's all we need. So 1 Peter chapter 5, the first thing you're going to notice is that Peter instructed elders to shepherd. That's the first thing he does. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. Notice how he begins this address. He says, I exhort the elders among you. Now the term translated elders in this passage, it's the same term. It can, it can refer generically to an old man, or it may refer to those who are appointed to the function in a, an official leadership role in the church. Context determines which it is. And the context of 1 Peter chapter 5 is very clear that it's a reference to those who serve in church leadership. Here's why. Because Peter will follow this, the elders among you statement there in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. He'll follow that with a reference to their duty. Because he'll talk about them being shepherds. He'll talk about them exercising oversight and so on. In this passage, Peter followed his reference to elders with the instruction to shepherd the flock that is among you, to exercise oversight. In so doing, what Peter does is he utilizes all three titles that are associated with church leaders. As a result, we know he's addressing church leaders. Now, we've already talked about the word elder. It can refer to an older man or it can refer to an official position in the church that involves leadership. You may recall in Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, they go through all these towns and they preach the gospel and and they they convert people to Christ. And then when they finish that part of the trip, they decide to go reverse order back through those towns. And Acts 13 tells us that they appointed elders in every church. That's the role. That's the leadership position that we're talking about. But that's not the only term associated with this position. There's another term Peter references here, he calls on them to be shepherds. Now that term shepherd can be used as a noun or a verb in relation to church leadership. You can go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, and there this position of a shepherd is identified among various particular roles within the congregation. And it's a reference to those who are tasked with shepherding. Peter uses the word shepherd as a verb here when he calls on elders to be shepherds. And so does Paul in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 when he instructed the elders of the church in Ephesus to be shepherds of the church of God. In addition to the term elder and shepherd, you also have this term overseer. Peter uses it as a verb and and calls on elders to exercise oversight. And and, and what Peter is referencing is this... this, uh, implication of being an overseer, because back in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, referencing that passage again, Paul instructed the elders in Ephesus to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And when Paul provided Timothy and Titus with a list of qualifications for church leaders, he referred to such leaders as an overseer. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. 
These three terms, elder, shepherd, overseer, they are used interchangeably here in 1 Peter chapter 5. They are used interchangeably in Acts chapter 20 as well. And that serves to tell us that all three terms are referencing the same role. So when Peter starts off his instructions here about a strange dynamic in the church, the first thing he does is he addresses the leaders. I exhort the elders among you. Now what does he exhort them to do? He exhorts them to be shepherds, as we've mentioned time, uh, multiple times already. But what does that mean? What does it mean to shepherd the flock of God that is among you? Well, there are three things I want you to notice this morning. Shepherding entails leading, but doing so willingly and unselfishly. Shepherd, shepherding entails leading, but doing so willingly and unselfishly. There's two important parameters outlined in Peter's instructions to elders. The first is that the position of an elder is not a position that one enters out of a mere sense of duty. It must be accompanied by a willing desire to serve in this role. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and you look at verse 2, you'll notice that elders are instructed to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. That's the first parameter. And if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, where we have a list of qualifications for elders, they begin, as I read a moment ago, with this statement, if anyone desires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Right there, desire is the first qualification. And so Paul, therefore, indicates that one must be, first be willing to assume this position, just like Peter did. Serving as an elder is never to be a have-to. It must be a want-to. But there is another parameter that has to do with leading here in, in 1 Peter chapter 5. And that second parameter is that the position of an elder is not a position that one exploits, either for personal gain or for power. Again, look at 1 Peter chapter 5, but look at verses 2 and 3 both, both of those verses. There, Peter instructs elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, skip down a little bit. Notice, he says, not for shameful game, there at the end of verse 2. And in verse 3, he says, not domineering over those in your charge. So the eldership is not a position that one utilizes to accumulate wealth. That is why an elder must not be greedy for money, as outlined in the qualification list of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3 and Titus chapter 1 and verse 7. And the eldership is not a position that one utilizes to accumulate power. That's why an elder must not be quarrelsome, as 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3. That's why an elder must not be self-willed or quick-tempered, as Titus chapter 1 and verse 7 says. You see, Peter here, call, Peter here states that el, being an elder, shepherding, I should say, shepherding entails leadership, but it must not be or must be, I should say, must be done willingly and it must be done unselfishly. The first aspect of shepherding is leading. The second thing shepherding entails is providing spiritual nourishment and protection. Shepherding entails providing spiritual nourishment and protection. Now the primary task of church leaders, of elders per se, is to watch out for the souls of those under their oversight. That's what Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 indicates. Watch out for the souls. And in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 through 31, Peter instructs the Ephesian elders to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock and to be on alert. 
And if you read through that passage, you'll discover why Paul emphasizes watchfulness and alertness. He states in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29 that savage wolves will come in among you who will harm the flock. And in verse 30, he indicates that individuals from within their flock will rise up and teach perverse things and draw away disciples. So the task of protecting the flock from both spiritual, thre- from spiritual threats inside and outside the flock is thrust upon those who assume the role of elders. That's their duty to protect the flock from spiritual threats. Now, what does watchfulness for them include? It includes protecting the flock from predators. Think about a shepherd. One of his primary jobs is to protect the sheep from predators. In the context of the church, that that includes protecting the flock, the body of Christ, from false teachers and divisive proponents. A shepherd also ensures that his flock receives an adequate diet. It makes sure that the the, the food is abundant and what what the sheep need for survival is present. In the context of the church, Shepherds ensure that, that the flock is receiving spiritual nourishment, both in the form of the teaching and preaching, but also through their own pastoral care. And finally, a shepherd, when it comes to, to the uh, watchfulness over a flock, it keeps the individual members of that flock safe. A shepherd will protect his flock from their own mistakes. In other words, a shepherd is going to, as the parable goes, leave the 99 to go find the one who has wandered away. And, and so when you put that in the context of the church, a shepherd is concerned about each individual sheep. And a shepherd is responsible for pursuing straying members from the body of Christ. It's a daunting task to watch over a flock. But that's the task of a shepherd to provide spiritual nourishment and spiritual protection. And one final thing to note about shepherding when it comes to the the role of elders, shepherding also entails providing correction when necessary. Shepherding entails providing correction when necessary. Notice Paul's description of the job assignment of elders in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. Paul referred to elders as those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. The word admonish means to caution, to advise, to counsel against something. It can also mean to reprove or to scold. It can even mean to remind or to urge to a duty. That word admonish has a lot of responsibility connected to it. It indicates that the elders have the responsibility to admonish us when we need to be corrected or reproved due to our sinful lifestyle. It means that they have the responsibility to admonish us when we need to be cautioned or advised regarding our behavior, our decisions, or our attitudes. It means that, we need to, that they have the responsibility to admonish us when we need to be reminded of our responsibilities as a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is a lot of weight to the correction that elders are given the responsibility to engage in. And so shepherding, shepherding entails leading willingly and unselfishly. Shepherding entails providing spiritual nourishment and protection. Shepherding entails providing correction when necessary. And all of that falls under the umbrella of what Peter is telling elders they are to do. He is instructing elders to shepherd. 
But Peter doesn't just leave his instructions for the elders and walk away. He has some instructions for members too. So if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, skip down to verse 5 of this passage. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. And there we'll discover that Peter instructs members to submit. I don't even know why I'm picking that up right now. Peter instructed members to submit. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. He says, You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, we've already noted that when Peter spoke about elders, he wasn't referring to chronological age. It's very evident from the context of the passage because he references their shepherding function and their oversight function. It's very evident from that passage that he's referring to the specific role in church leadership that's called an elder. But now he shifts to talking about those who are younger. Is he just talking about chronological age here? It's possible. I mean, we're all younger than Bob, so uh, that, 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 that categorically includes all of us. I, I think, though, here in terminology, here using the terminology, that, that Peter isn't just focused on those who are younger by age. He's referring to the, to the opposite of the elders, which would include the entire body of believers. I think his point as stated by one commentator, is this, that generally speaking, the remaining believers are younger in contrast to the elders, and the designated, designation younger is a suitable, formal counterpart to the term elders. And so while there may be individuals who are older than a particular elder, the idea is those who are under the oversight of the elders. The younger are those who, who are in the, the opposite of the term elders. And so I think the, the terminology here is trying to be all-inclusive of the body of Christ. Maybe there is some specifics to those who are youthful, but I believe it is referencing the entire body. And in so doing, I think we need to understand 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 is saying that we are all, as members of the body, to be subject to the elders. Now we've seen this phraseology be subject to multiple times in Peter's letter. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, Peter instructed Christians to be subject to every human institution. And the first human institution that Peter identified was the government. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18, Peter referenced the second human institution when he instructed servants to be subject to their masters. And we made a correlation between the servant-master relationship and our modern-day employee-employer relationships. And so Peter gave instructions for Christians as citizens to be subject to the government. Then he gave instructions for Christians as servants or employees to be subject to their masters or their employers. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, he gave instructions regarding the third human institution, marriage. And he instructed wives to be subject to their husbands, but he also instructed husbands to honor their wives. And as we've noted throughout this series, that Greek term translated be subject, it literally means to submit to one's control, to yield to one's authority. So this Greek term indicates that one is to submit to the rule of another who has been granted authority over him or her. And so what this passage is telling us is that the flock is expected to submit to godly leadership. The author of Hebrews employs the term obey. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, while Peter employs the term submit, but they both carry the idea that the flock that's under the oversight of an eldership is to submit to that eldership. 
Now, we tend not to like those terms, obey and submit, because they infringe upon our individuality. They infringe upon our personal freedoms. But think about what submission entails in this regard. Submission of a flock to a shepherd entails appreciating the magnitude of the elder's responsibility. To appreciate something is to to recognize its full worth. In the context of the, the church body's relationship to the shepherds, appreciation is recognizing and understanding the full weight of the responsibility of an eldership. This is something Scripture expects us to do. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13 with me again. We've referenced this passage a few times, but, but I want you to see the application of this passage on members, not just elders. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The elders will be held accountable for how they care for the spiritual well-being of the flock. That's an intense job assignment. Think about it this way. Members only have to give an account for themselves. Teachers have to give an account for themselves and what they teach, per James chapter 3. But elders, they have to give an account for themselves and for those whom they oversee. Because of the tremendous task that elders assume voluntarily... We need to realize that there's an appreciation the flock should have toward them, toward that job assignment. Now look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verse 12 and 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here Paul's going to give instructions to members of the body as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 12 and 13. Paul instructs members of the body to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And if you look down verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Respect and esteem. That's the assignment of the body. That's what submission, what, that's what being subject entails. Appreciation. Respect and esteem. And you know, it's very easy to complain and to whine and to think that the elders that they do everything wrong. But we're not in their shoes. We're not bearing their responsibility. We're not subjecting ourselves to the burden of accountability that they face. The fact that they're willing to accept this position deserves the utmost respect and esteem. And so submission here, in addition to to the degree of obedience it, it entails, it also entails an appreciation of what those who have accepted this responsibility are doing. But it also entails cooperation. Submission also entails cooperating with godly leadership. When it comes to the flock's relationship with the eldership, submission is more than just doing what you're told. Submission involves a level of cooperation that creates joy. We were at Hebrews 13 and verse 17 earlier. We didn't read the entirety of it. But something else that the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13 and verse 17 is let them, let those who rule over you, let them do this, the keeping watch over your souls. Let those who rule over you keep watch over your souls with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let them do their job with joy. How many of us as parents would like to second that with our kids? 
Can you let us do this with a bit of joy? Because all too often there are parents among us today that have experienced and understood what it's like to have children who are disobedient, who are unwilling to submit, and therefore become a source of grief to the parent. There are spouses among us who have experienced in their marital relationship the lack of submission, despite the fact that Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 instructs us both husbands and wives to submit to one another. And it becomes a source of grief. There are employers among us who have experienced the lack of submission from an employee, and it's a source of grief. And here in Hebrews chapter 13, we're called upon as Christians, as members of the body of Christ, to submit to those who are in leadership in such a way as to bring them joy. As we submit to godly leadership, we should do so with the intent, not of causing grief, but of creating joy. That entails cooperation rather than opposition to godly leadership. When, we, when you have godly leadership, there's no reason not to cooperate. That's my point. So Peter instructed members of the body of Christ, Peter instructed the flock to submit to godly leadership. But Peter didn't end there. He addressed elders, and then he addressed the body, but then he addressed everyone. Force of habit. Then he addressed everyone. Because if you look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 again, You'll notice that he doesn't conclude with the, those who are younger passage. He goes on to say, all of you. Now, in that statement, he's including elders, he's including members, he's including both. He's including everyone. All of you do this, he says. This applies to all of you. And what's the instruction? To clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Do you know what humility ultimately is? Humility is a recognition of your own unworthiness. Humility is an understanding that you don't deserve what you've received from God. And here's the thing, humility is an attribute that we choose to possess. That's why Peter said, clothe yourselves in it. You choose what you're going to put on when you get dressed. Clothing doesn't automatically fly onto you and dress you. You have to make a choice to be clothed. And so Peter instructs us to clothe ourselves in humility. That means we have to choose it. But how do you choose to possess humility? Do you remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18? Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, you can see this parable, and it, can, it, it portrays two different individuals going to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee. And in the Pharisee's prayer, he thanked God that he was not like other men, such as extortioners or the unjust or adulterers, or even the tax collector he saw over there praying. What was the Pharisee doing when he said that prayer? In his arrogance, he was announcing how much better than other men he was, which indicates that he was focused on comparing himself to other sinful people. Meanwhile, you have the tax collector who's over there off in the distance, refusing to look in God's general direction, beating his chest and pleading for God's mercy. What was the tax collector doing as he prayed? He was comparing himself to God and realizing that he was undeserving of God's grace because he was a sinner. 
And who did Jesus say went away justified in that parable? Was it the self-absorbed Pharisee who compared himself to other people? Or was it the self-abased tax collector who compared himself to God? See, here's the point. Humility is an attribute that is acquired not by comparing ourselves to other flawed people, but by comparing ourselves to a holy God. Our flesh wants to exalt the self, but in order to do that, it has to find a standard that offers an easy comparison. So when we measure ourselves spiritually, our flesh encourages us not to compare ourselves to spiritual giants, but to spiritual failures. In other words, instead of comparing ourselves to the Apostle Paul, for instance, for instance, we compare ourselves to the Apostle Judas. Because that's an easier comparison. The problem is that when we compare ourselves to other people, we've chosen a comparative standard that's too low. You don't claim to be the strongest person alive because you lifted a toy that an infant couldn't. You don't claim to be the fastest person alive because you outran a toddler. You don't claim to be the smartest person alive because you built, beat a child at tic-tac-toe. You don't do that because you know the comparative standards are too low. And yet that's basically what we're doing when we compare ourselves to other mortals. That's exactly what the Pharisee was doing when he prayed at the temple. And here's the thing, you'll always, you'll always be able to go to the temple and find somebody that can cause you to pray, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like them. You'll always be able to find someone to compare yourself to for your selfaholic prayer. And here's the thing, we're not called to compare ourselves to each other, we're called to compare ourselves to God. Jesus didn't instruct us to be more perfect than your neighbor, he instructed us to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard by which we measure ourselves. And when you do that, it creates humility. You have to choose to always live in comparison, not to other people, but in comparison to the one and only God, because that's the only way you can choose humility. And Peter concludes his instructions here by citing Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34. You'll see that in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. He quotes it in his own words saying, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Peter's statement seems to indicate that God only sees two kinds of people. Those who exalt themselves and those that humble themselves. At least that's the two categories of people Jesus mentioned in Luke chapter 18 and verse 14. At the conclusion of that parable of the Pharisee and tax collector, Jesus said everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And Scripture asserts that only those who humble themselves will at the proper time be exalted by God. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. See, the reason Peter concludes by calling on all of us to have humility is that it doesn't matter whether you're in a position of leadership or you're in a position of fellowship. It does not matter because either way, you're expected to be humble. Because we live in a world, we live in a culture that finds humility strange. Deep down, we're all selfaholics. We're born that way. We entered this world as babies who could only think about self and we had to be taught that the world doesn't revolve around us. Yet despite that awareness that we're not the center of the universe, we still struggle at times with an addiction to ourselves. We're into self-confidence. We're into self-sufficiency. We're into self-improvement. We're into self-righteousness. Think about it this way. We're the society that created the term selfie. 
We're the society that invented an instrument to aid in our candid self-portraits called a selfie stick. We're the society that created social media websites and apps like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter that allow us to advertise our lives, our thoughts, our experience, regardless of whether or not anybody wants to hear about them. We're the society that created reality television because some of us think our lives are so spectacular that the rest of the world needs to see it. We are a self-absorbed society. And what Peter is saying is you've got to be strange. And strangeness starts with humility. Don't let that arrogance, that selfishness, that self-absorbed mentality enter the church. That's what Peter's saying. All of you have to remain humble. Because that's the only way that strange dynamic in the church works. Whether you're an elder or whether you're a member, the only way the strange dynamic works in the church is if you embrace humility. This morning, as we're gathered here, we call on each of us to examine ourselves to see whether or not humility fits into our lives. We're all called to be strange, and that strangeness starts with humility, and that humility might just need to start right now. Maybe you need to humble yourself and admit that you're wrong. Admit that your life isn't being lived the way it should be. Admit that God alone is King of kings and His Son alone our Savior. Maybe you need to admit that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God. Maybe you need to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Maybe you need to admit that it's time for you to live your life a different way. If you'll make that great confession about Jesus and repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, you can start a new, very strange life. Maybe that's a decision you need to make today. Maybe in your self-absorbed nature, after having become a child of God, you found yourself stray away from His will. Maybe you found yourself attracted to the sins of the past that you need to remove, that you need to remedy. Maybe in your humility you need to acknowledge that you failed in your mission to be strange. And you need God's forgiveness and you need a clean slate. Whatever your need is today, maybe you just want to learn more about being strange. Maybe you just need to seek the prayers of a bunch of strange people to help you stay strange. Whatever your need is. This strange dynamic in the church exists so that we can help one another. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?
Thank you, Kyle. Our closing hymn this morning will be hymn 947. 947. If you're visiting with us, we like you to stay after awards for a moment. Let us greet you and meet you, get to know you, so that you can make heaven your home and make this your home as well. And if you've not done so, please pass your attendance cards to the inside aisles, and they'll be gathered as we sing our closing hymn. Tonight, 6 o'clock, evening service. Be here. 947. Jesus, let us God, our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for being our God, for being our Father. We thank you for the love that you've shown us, Father, uh, the un undeserving to us, Father, but uh, we thank you for that love that manifests itself through your Son and into the community that you created for us, the church. Father, we pray at this time that, that we will fulfill our roles and responsibilities in such a way, Father, as we're striving to love you, to love our brothers and sisters, and to strive to do your will as we live on this earth and try to complete your mission. Father, we ask your blessing upon uh, those of our number that have infirmaries, Father, that are uh, struggling uh, with their faith, struggling mentally, struggling uh, with jobs financially, Father, and for all of us, Father, that you would uh, give us that measure of comfort and peace, Father, that comes from staying in your word. Go with us, Father, as we uh, go through this day. Uh, bring us back the next point of time as a body, Father, that we might worship you again. For it's Christ's name we pray. Amen.